Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Hello and welcome to Habits and Hustle. And today we have Dr. Will Cole joining us. He is a leading functional medicine expert. He consults people around the world via webcam, and he specializes in clinically investigating the underlining factors of chronic disease, such as thyroid issues, brain issues, digestive disorders, hormonal dysfunctions. He was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation, and he's a health expert and course instructor for the world's largest brands, including MindBodyGreen and Goop. His newest book is called Intuitive Fasting, and it's already a number one bestseller. He talks about how fasting can recharge your metabolism and renew your health. Please listen to this episode. I am sure you will find it very interesting, and you will find some practical information that will help you with your health. Enjoy. I mean, I'm curious, how did you get involved with Goop? Because I know that you, I mean, Gwyneth wrote your foreword and I know you're always on their site and I know that that's kind of like given you so much traction and it's great for you. How did that whole connection happen? Because usually, you know, you you don't live so close. You know what I mean? You're kind of far away. So, Well, I mean, I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So I think that's a part of it is that the world's always been small for me as far as functional medicine is concerned. So I uh, have only seen patients via webcam. And I think that just connected me to uh, different doctors and different people in the space. So I met Gwyneth through uh, Alejandro Younger, who is a cardiologist who also has known her for years. So um, yeah, so that's how, how it came to be. So what, can you tell, like, I mean, I guess we're just going to start. I guess this, I'll, do, I'll do a proper intro later. I just have like, I have a ton of questions. So yeah, go um, for it. So like a functional medicine doctor, could you call yourself a functional medicine practitioner? You don't call yourself a doctor. Um, is that not like a natural path? It's like, I'm Canadian. We call them natural paths where, where I'm from. I'm living yeah. in LA now, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, Canadians are like some of the nicest people in the world. So thank you. I love Canada so much. <laughs> thank you. People say that all the time. So I like that. True. What province are you from? I'm actually originally, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Have you ever, have you ever even heard of that before? Oh, yes, I have. Of course. Yeah, you have. Okay. Yeah. And then I, and then I moved to Toronto and I went to school in Toronto and I worked cool. in Toronto for many years. And then I moved here like eons ago, but well, um, yeah. So, by the way, it's also the same for Pittsburgh. I mean, when I heard you were, when I saw and I read and I heard that you weren't from here, I'm like, oh, okay. Like it kind of, yes, everything kind of all comes together so nicely in a pretty little bow, you know? Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I am a doctor. I'm a functional uh, Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. I'm a doctor of natural medicine and I have a doctor in chiropractic as well. So I, um, the reason why I use the word functional medicine practitioner, because that is what the Institute for Functional Medicine calls us. So the Cleveland oh. Clinic's Functional Medicine Center, uh, that's they're all trained all from the Institute for Functional Medicine or IFM, and that's who's trained myself and my team. So that's just the proper terminology for it. I am a doctor that practices functional medicine. Uh, but uh, the, the, to answer your question, naturopaths, not all naturopaths are trained in functional medicine. But there are many naturopaths that are trained in functional medicine. There's such an overlap because there's a lot of commonalities, right? Yeah. But but functional medicine is a very specific school 
within uh, integrative thought, integrative healthcare, because there are MDs that are functional medicine practitioners, there's DCs, there's acupuncturists, there's oriental medicines, there's DOs, and there's naturopaths too. And there's nurse practitioners too, if I didn't say that. So there's a whole field of conventionally or, uh, you know, they're trained in healthcare to some degree. And then, then they go to postdoctorate education to be trained through the Institute for Functional Medicine. So that's what IFMCP is. That's what I, what I am. Oh, okay. So then what is like, how, what does a functional medicine person do versus a regular MD? Well, yeah. And, and, and just to reiterate something I said too, uh, is that most of my colleagues are, men, are MDs as well, but they, um, oh. So most Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioners, IFMCPs, are MDs, the majority of them are. Mm. So the difference is that there's a few things. One, we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's out there that's listening will know, hey, when I get my labs done, I go to my doctor, I get my labs done, and I'm this number, my biomarker, all the labs in my lab uh, are compared to this reference range. Well, we get that reference range from a statistical bell curve average of the people who go to that lab. So people that predominantly go to labs, sadly, are people with health problems. So yeah. there's a lot of people, especially women, that know intuitively something's off here. I don't feel right. And they go to their doctor and the doctor says, oh, they run the labs and everything's quote unquote normal. And they're told you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant, or you're just getting older. You're a new mom. That's all that it is. And then hormones, or yeah, yeah. it's like these blanket things, which are well intentioned, right? I mean, they're trying to give reasons as to how this person could be having these symptoms, despite these quote unquote normal labs. But what they're unintentionally telling them is they're a lot like the other people with health problems that they're being compared to. So we're looking at a functional range. That's a thinner range within that larger reference range. So that's where vibrant wellness resides. So we're standardizing optimal health range, and that's what we all use within functional medicine. And then we run more comprehensive labs. So the training in the standard model of care, which certainly has its place, there's nothing wrong with it, but they're trained to diagnose a disease and match it with a medication. So that serves many people, and there's some people that need to be on medication, but there's a lot of things that fall through the cracks of that system because health and health problems exist, exist on a spectrum. Right. So and we realize we're ultimately no one's sick from a medication deficiency. So let's find out actually what's driving these problems. So we're running more comprehensive labs to get multiple labs perspective. It doesn't change the conventional treatment model. So that's superfluous from their standpoint. They're still going to give you the, the antidepressant or the, or the statin drug right. or the diabetic medication or thyroid, whatever the case may be. We want to ask, okay, what's upstream for this? Why is this problem here in the first place? Right. So it's based off of a health history, but it's just more thorough labs. And then we realize we're all created differently. So there's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting healthy. So it's tailored to the individual. So that's what functional medicine is compared to conventional. So then when you do like all your telemedicine webcam way, like you have your business is like you said, the first to ever do this around the world. How mm -hmm. do you get a good idea, an understanding of someone? You're not really, you're testing them differently. Is it the questions you're asking them and then you send them the tests or how does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So, and I think us doing this 10 years ago and for the past decade, people didn't get it as much because they right. were like, I thought you'd have to be there for that. And we're not replacing someone's primary care, care physician. We're not right. replacing someone's GP. So physical exams obviously still need to be done locally. 
Uh, we are not replacing that. But we there's I think because of the pandemic right now, people understand it that doctors had to learn overnight that, whoa, we actually didn't have to be in person for all this right. stuff. And we take a very, very comprehensive health history. Uh, we ask a lot of questions and we spend, I mean, depending on the doc you're talking about, but an hour, hour and a half, two hours, the initial visit, really digging into a case thoroughly. Mm -hmm. I, before you see them, you have to prepare for this to get prep so you're not wasting their time just kind of catching up on their case. So I do prep and, and then I spend an hour and a half with them on top of that. So it's very thorough. It's like a clinical Sherlock Holmes because these are people, I mean, my people are People with autoimmune issues, metabolic issues, these really complex mystery things that they've gone to many brilliant conventional doctors and many brilliant alternative doctors. So I can't be, you know, showing up to the party late. I need to be on point and hold space for them and do my due diligence and give them the, the thoughtfulness and the fresh perspective that they deserve. So uh, I, I don't have to be with them person physically we drop ship labs to them we coordinate all the labs like if it's a blood lab we find a local facility that they right. go to. we arrest our kits so we either fedex or ups they sh ship them to the labs so you can be anywhere we have patients all around the world well what i thought was amazing i went on your website and i did two things i did your inflammation um quiz to see if i yeah. how much inflammation i had or if i have any which I want to talk to you about. And then secondly, I did the, uh, in the, fa in the fast, or was it the meta uh, metabolically flexible yeah. Uh, yeah. quiz? What I couldn't believe, I swear, I was like answering these questions and it's like next page and like another laundry list of questions. And it was like next page. I'm like, there was like literally like a hundred questions, even mm -hmm. on this, like, I thought it was going to be like this like dinky little, you know, quiz <laughs> that you have to always do. Yeah, they ask you like, yeah. are you this? Are you that? Yeah. And it's like this small nothing quiz, but mm -hmm. it was like, even that was extensive. I was impressed yeah. by that. Thank you. I, that, that, those quizzes, all of them are adapted from questions that I ask patients. So they're wow. all, they're not like just to, for people to just like know if they're, what personality type they are. <laughs> they yeah, right. Right. The deeper, right. deeper things are like, which golden girl you are. <laughs> 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 I'm Dorothy, by the way, but um, <laughs> um, or Sophia. But um, it's funny that you said that show because it was like my favorite show growing up. Me too. It's so funny. <laughs> it's the best show ever. Um, yeah. And it and it was it was also like you know you asked a question I never heard before in terms was it the inflammation thing about if your eyebrow um, can you can you say that because I I never saw that before. Yeah. Yeah. So the outer third of your eyebrow, if that's thinning, that's a clinical hallmark sign that there could be a thyroid problem. doesn't mean it automatically is. There's other causes for it too. But it's these larger, these myriad of different pieces of the puzzle that we put things into context. So from that health history, we could see, okay, what labs are the most relevant? Because one of the critiques that we get in functional medicine is that we run too many labs. And yeah, that's why health history is so important. So we don't have to do that. Look, any like any lab beyond the basic lab is too much labs for some people with a conventional mind. So that's right. that judgment by itself doesn't hold water to me because we want to be comprehensive, but we want to be comprehensive without being excessive. So questions like that will show us, okay, we need to run a, th a thorough thyroid panel to see if that's an issue or not to rule it out. It may not be. A lot of these things do mimic other things, but we have Ow. to. How, how did that ever come to be something with the thyroid? 
Yeah, the thyroid, every cell of our body has a thyroid receptor site. So it is, um, it governs so much of our, our life. But normally that's one of the first things or the most common things that can happen because you could, it's not just the outer third of your eyebrows, but it can happen all over your, your head as well. But that's just a tell, is a very telltale sign of that specific thing. But people can lose even more than that. That's just one aspect of it. Can you say, can you give me a couple other things that like just uh, that people have never really heard of or been asked when they've gone to see somebody like that? Because to me, that's like, so like in the weeds that that like, I, I was blown away when I saw that as a question. Yeah, for that. of course. Yeah. Let me think of some other um, ones. One is what, uh, when you get up quickly, do you get dizzy? Oftentimes people will say to me, oh, that does happen to me all the time. I didn't even think about it. The eyebrow, I get that a lot too, is that they'll be like, oh my gosh, I had looked in the mirror and I realized like, that, that is me. Or I always, my kids always comment about it, but I never really thought about it. So right. um, uh, orthostatic hypertension, basically getting up, getting a little bit dizzy, uh, that could be a sign of a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis problem or HPA axis. It's basically some sort of hormonal imbalance. We have to run labs to substantiate the specifics of it, but some problem with cortisol, um, some possible problem as well with some electrolyte issues and other hormones could be interplaying with that. Um, another one would be craving salty foods. Uh, and they need to bring context to that too, because they may say like, oh, it's just potato chips and it's, it's yeah. not this. And I love them. No. Right. <laughs> and there's no right. shame in that. But, but I, you have to ask questions. You have to do follow-ups of like, okay, well, what are we talking about? Some people are like, I could literally like lick an assault block. Like I, yeah. I, I, I just need this to like get through the day. So that could be a sign of an HPA access issue too with cortisol, a stress hormone. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some, but there's, there's a lot. I mean, honestly, we ask hundreds of questions. There's a hundreds of them. So like, let's get to like, okay. So you're, I, one of the books that I know you've written a few, but one of them is the uh, inflammation uh, spectrum book, which I thought was very, very good. And I think you talk about us all the time about how like at the core of every root of every problem is inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so, and then like you, that's why I took that quiz and everything else. How do you even go about, besides if I didn't look at that quiz, like how do you even uh, go about knowing where you are on a spectrum like this and what the spectrum is? And then uh, another, I guess, part B to the question would be um, how that also affects such things as like medical, like mental health, you know, like people don't Mm -hmm. ever correlate anything together. They just think, you know, they don't, there's no real, like there's a disconnect between all of these things. Yeah. Sure. Inflammation is quite a, a nebulous term for some people that they, they know it's not right, but they don't really know the, the specifics of what we're referring to. But inherently, actually, inflammation is not a problem. It's, it's a product of our immune system. So in balance, in check, inflammation fights off viruses, fights off bacteria, heals wounds. There's nothing inherently wrong with measured appropriate response inflammatory issue, uh, inflammatory cascades. The problem is when inflammation is thrown out of balance. So it's subject to this Goldilocks principle in the body. You don't want it too high. You don't want it too low. You want it just right at the right time. And that applies to our hormones. You don't want excess hormones. You don't want deficiencies. It applies to our gut microbiome. You don't want bacterial or yeast overgrowth. You want 
right colonies, but you don't want a deficiency of them either. So it's really um, about this homeostasis that we're looking at with inflammation. So inflammation too high for too long, chronic inflammation is this commonality. And I think that's the, the kind of the specifics that I like to, to bring about on this topic is this commonality. It's not the causation of everything because then we have to ask the question, what's even causing the inflammation? So commonality, yes, it can cause symptoms for sure. But ultimately, it's not the most upstream core of this because something's driving the chronic inflammation. So that's my job in functional medicine to run labs to not only understand inflammation, which is certainly the byproduct of some disturbance in the body, but it's it's we want to look at what's causing it as well. So inflammation is a product of the immune system. When it's this forest fire that's burning in perpetuity, that's the issue. So that is linked to autoimmune conditions, to anxiety to the, the metabolic issues, type 2 diabetes, depression, uh, hormone problems, heart disease, I mean, cancer. I mean, it, you could go on ad infinitum and look at all yeah. the health problems that we talk about, have these uh, inflammation, either they're overtly chronic inflammatory or they at least have inflammatory components to them. And to your se second point, you're absolutely right. And, and as I was, as I have been talking about inflammation spectrum the past year or so, uh, the, the, we like to separate mental health from physical health, but we, that is not accurate. I mean, mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body. So to somehow like separate it as a separate thing, that anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog and ADD, ADHD, autism, all these things are just separate than our physical health. No, I mean, there's tons of research exploring this, that it's known in some studies, it's known as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how inflammation is impacting our brain. How is, how is inflammation impacting mental health? So that is definitely something that I explore because I see a lot of people with anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog. And there, of course, are mental, emotional, situational components to that for many cases. But that's the bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physiology. Our right. thoughts and emotions, like it's like someone's feeding themselves with shame or stress or living out trauma or unhealthy relationship, that stuff raises inflammation levels. But conversely, underlying gut issues, hormonal problems, metabolic issues, those things impact your thoughts and emotions. They double your risk for anxiety and depression. So we have to look at both sides of that coin. What's hard, though, is to understand where one begins and one ends, right? Because you can have a combination of both, right? Yeah, and they typically are. Yeah you, yeah. yeah, you have to deal with both sides. You have to. And some people will tell you, "I my life is great. Like, I have no problem. And they truly, for all intents and purposes, that's true for them. They, there may be some past trauma going on, and they don't even know it. But for the most part, there are some people that will tell you, my life is great. I have no stress. I have like, I, I just live. No stress? Yeah, right. There's few people. But, but, the, but that's like very frustrating for those people because they're like, I literally don't even know what's going on in my body, but I have runaway anxiety. I have runaway depression. I have runaway. I don't even know what's going on. Why am I getting panic attacks? I'm not even stressed about anything. It's that physiological component of things like anxiety and depression that we have to explore. And if that it, it, is it as simple as I know, and we're going to get into your new book about uh, intuitive fasting, but is it really about just 
can diet alone really help and how you diet really change the level of inflammation in someone's body alone? Like, have you ever seen someone go from being on all these meds, like real meds, to then tweaking their diet and actually being, you know, antidepressant free or anxiety free? Or is it just like more of a degree, you know, maybe from 100%, you're down to like 80%. It depends on the case. You know, my job is to say, we're not anti-medication at all. I mean, there's some people no, no, I know. to be on medication. We just ask the question, what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? And when you talk about things like anxiety and depression, just use that as an example, it depends on the case. Like my job is to move the needle in the most powerful way as much as that person's body will allow. For some people, it's 100%. And I would say many people, it's 100% resolved through functional medicine. But there's some people, you're absolutely right. It'll be like 50% resolved or are 60% resolved or 70% resolved. Now those people, some of them still have to remain on those medications, but we're dramatically improving their health because oftentimes the people that we're seeing, they're on all the medications. Yeah. They are doing all the things their doctor is telling them to do, but they're still struggling and they've exhausted all the options within the conventional setting. So at that point, what do they do? What they, do they, they do? Tell me what you do. What do you put them on? What do you do with them? Well, we have to really explore the case. And that's the thing with, I mean, if we can keep using that example, anxiety, depression, or thyroid issues, I mean, whatever we're talking about here, those are like check engine lights for me. Like I know the check engine lights on, but why? So to kind of go back to my further state, our earlier statement of what's driving the inflammation, I could have a hundred people with anxiety and I'd have close to a hundred different answers, at least a conflict, mm. combination of different things where there are be bigger pieces and smaller pieces, but it's normally a confluence of factors. It's a perfect storm of variables that need to be explored externally, trauma, uh, stress, not getting enough sleep, toxic work environment, unhealthy marriage, whatever, that kind of stuff. But then there's so much physiological stuff oftentimes too. So I'll give you one random example that we see quite often. It's not so random in our world, but random from a conventional thinking. Your gut is formed from the same fetal tissue. Babies growing in their mom's womb, the gut and brain are formed from that same fetal tissue and they're inextricably linked for the rest of our lives through what's known in the research as the gut-brain axis, the connection between the gut and the brain. 95% of serotonin, your happy neurotransmitter, is made in the gut, stored in the gut. So we have to look at dysbiosis. People, I mean, there's many studies that show different bacterial imbalances, bacterial overgrowth, gut inflammation can drive anxiety and depression and actually has been shown in certain studies the neurological changes that people can see, the causative factor is the underlying gut issue, the second brain that's going on there. Antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications are not going to change that. So they may get their head above water, which has its place. I'm not against people being on those medications, but people know intuitively, well, this doesn't really, this takes the edge off, but not fully, or it doesn't help me out at all, or it helped for a little bit and there was a honeymoon period, but then it quit working. So at that point, we have to keep digging, like what is going on here? So I've seen countless of cases where they get that got their gut healthy, they really dealt with that underlying upstream driver of neuroinflammation or brain inflammation, and it completely resolved their symptoms. That's not every case, but the point is we see the check engine lights on, mm-hmm. what's going on? That's gonna be different from person to person. How about inflammation and cancer? There's a correlation there too, right? Yeah, it's the immune system out of control. So it's this unfettered Mm. inflammatory response that can trigger and be a part of the pathophysiology of some cancers. So absolutely, it's 
you want to have a healthy, measured, modulated immune response. And based on someone's genetics or something they're exposed to, that can manifest different for different people. But look, researchers estimate that our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. Why, like, why are we seeing an epidemic rise of chronic health problems like never before? Better diagnostics plays a part of that, like it explains part of that. But right. no one in the health space, both conventional and otherwise, will tell you that's entirely due to better diagnostics. We know more people are getting sick with these issues, whether it's heart disease or cancer or autoimmune conditions or mental health issues or metabolic issues. This is not just due to better diagnostics. This is a serious problem. And there's a genetic and epigenetic mismatch that researchers are exploring. I'm not exploring, I'm just one reading the research and applying it in people's lives. But researchers in the scientific journals are looking at this evolutionary mismatch between our DNA which has remained unchanged for 10,000 years, but these genetic predispositions for things like cancer and heart disease and autoimmune conditions and diabetes are being triggered like never before because of this genetic epigenetic mismatch, the way that we live our life now. I mean, and also uh, and this, this is a great segue into your new book, Intuitive Fasting, because I feel like fasting has become, or intermittent fasting has become a very um, mainstream fad like thing to do, right? Like when people are, they're like, Oh, I'm intermittent. And I mean, people are like, Oh yeah, I try, I'm doing intermittent fasting or I'm doing this. And is it, you know, for all, and I know you're going to, you're going to yell at me, but you know, I always felt like it was just a way to control your calories, right? Like, you know, if you have a window to eat, then you won't overeat for weight loss. I'm talking, we could talk mm -hmm. about the health, but I want to talk about the health benefits and all the other stuff, but you know, is it became such a it became such a, a fad, right? So, what is what does it mean when you call your book intuitive fasting? Because is it like it? Because intuitive eating is also a fad, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. I've heard that a lot too. Yeah, no, I would call them fads, and uh, but and that's not necessarily a bad thing because ev everything in healthcare, like I've been in, I've been a health. Uh, uh, junkie in my own life personally since I was like a little kid I was an odd kid that like spent my money <laughs> like going to the health food store to like buy random things as like a 14 year old so it's like, <laughs> like since the 80s and 90s for me which has been part of my life so you see over the course of the the decades that there's a lot of zeitgeists there's a lot of bubbles that happen but look I'm not concerned so much with the bubble. I think it's good because more people are aware of good things and it betters people's lives. It educates people. Hopefully there's a lot of noise oftentimes with the way that, you know, headlines go and uh, confusion goes with Dr. Google. But other than that, yes. like, I think that, education, that's how people are educated. Sometimes it's like they're hearing things they've never heard before, but I look, even when fads come and go, if it's solid science and solid clinical application, that's what I get to see on an hourly basis consulting people online. Yeah. So yeah, like fasting is a, a fad, but it doesn't mean it's not legitimate. Humans have been doing it for thousands and thousands of well, years. And people have had a, a, amazing effects. But, you know, I remember because like you, I'm similar to that point, like where I've always been really obsessed and like curious and fascinated about this. And you remember not that long. It used to be that you should be eating five, six little meals a day to keep your metabolism revving, right? That was, that was one of the things to eat breakfast first thing to get your metabolism going. Like all of these, um, you know, ways of, of, of living to be healthy yeah. and to be more fit and whatever else have now been kind of like abolished basically. And all the, now the, all the other, now the new research, and I read this in your book was that eating two 
two meals a day versus eating five meals a day has been way more effective in weight loss and, and health and all these other, other things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a lot of things that we were told growing up, uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily the, the truth. It, it's, uh, but the Where do they come is, from? Where do those things come from then? Well, look, it's relatively true, but not absolutely true. So that advice example, like five, five to six small meals a day, that's relatively true when your body's metabolically inflexible. So if your body mm. is metabolically inflexible, you're in a sugar burning mode and you're living on kindling, which is sugar for fuel, that advice is actually understandable because you're like, yeah, that person needs kindling to get through the day. If you take off that fifth kindling, they're going to be hangry and irritable and bite oh, your head off. Awful. And I have an example of it. I, I honestly, like when I was reading like, seriously, I'm like, this is me. This is me. This is me. Like if I don't eat a meal, I like, I like, you don't want to be around me. Like I get shaky and mad and angry and yeah. it's a nightmare. And so um, can we talk about this whole metabolic inflexible? Like, how does one become this? What is it to find it for people? Yeah. And, and to your point too, I, I think it's important for me to maybe mention this is that there's quite a difference between chronic caloric restriction and intermittent fasting. There are fasting techniques and fasting mimicking techniques that temporarily lower calories for a time to mimic fasting, but it's not chronically doing it. And refeeding is just as important as the fast or the fasting mimicking protocol. But time-restricted feeding, the specific type of subset of intermittent fasting that I'm exploring in intuitive fasting is uh, – that is not have, doesn't have anything to do with caloric restriction. You're just planning on specific windows of eating to leverage these amazing health benefits. So that's to be clear on that. But there are some studies that show, and I cite them in the book, that there ended up being a slight caloric deficit sometimes mm -hmm. for the deeper time restricted feeding windows, and that that does have some benefits to it. It's like caloric deficit. It's not massive for re reduction, but that certainly is a fringe benefit. Of fasting, but many studies have been done because we had to know. And as far as the research is concerned, does fasting is it because of the calorie deficit? Is it because of the way that people change the foods that they eat, or was it the actual time? So studies have been done to look at the calories they were controlled for calories. So the same amount of calories one's eaten all day long and one has a tighter eating window. The tighter eating window, same amount of calories, saw improved benefits. So we know that is a major. What are the benefits? Tell us the benefits. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, yeah, I could. I'll give you the short-winded and the long-winded version. The short-winted is. I, Paracelsus, one of the fathers of modern medicine that I quote in the book, he was known as the, the father of toxicology or the Martin Luther of medicine because he was reforming medicine in the late 1400s, early 1500s in Switzerland. He called fasting the physician within, which I think to me, everything I'm about to say is summarized with that, like this inner doctor that upregulates and activates and repairs and renews and restores and does all these really cool stuff. So it is upregulating uh, so many cool pathways that we all have, we were all, all are, all are operating to some degree or we'd be dead, but they're, they're very sluggish because of modernity. They're really sluggish because of this genetic epigenetic mismatch. So fasting, because from an ancestral health perspective, fasting is actually coded in our DNA. So we would have evolved over that, those thousands and thousands of years to spend times because of food scarcity in times of fasting. And then we know on top of that spiritually, and uh, early medicine, Hippocrates, Paracelsus all used fasting, not because they had randomized controlled trials, but because they saw it improve people's health. And now research is just catching up with 
antiquity that we see how the mechanisms and we know the benefits of it, but it shifts your body into this uh, metabolic state known as nutritional ketosis, which the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting and fasting all do that. So ketogenic diet in many ways is a fasting mimicking way of eating. And that's why I pair the intuitive fasting protocol with ketotarian, which is what I talked about in my first book, but it's just a deeper dive in this book. Uh, how do we mimic fasting and fast to leverage these benefits? Because it puts this body, the body into this state of nutritional ketosis, which is known in the research as the fourth macronutrient ketones are. So we have protein, fats, carbs, and ketones. So it's a way to burn fat. So you get the kindling off of the fire for the little bit. That's the sugar for fuel. And you get a log in the fire. It's being fat adapted. And that's more slow burning, more sustainable. You have energy. That's why people have increased energy levels and fat burning. But there's a time and place for clean carb cycling and the kindling on the fire. And we talk about that in the book. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's the best fire, the best light, the best energy is kindling analog. So I don't think you have to pick one or the other and say, well, the sugar is the best or the fat's the best. I think both have their place depending on the person and, and what, what their goals are. But uh, it, it's not just a way to burn fat. Like I'm so much more excited about, I mean, me back up a little bit. I, I think the people that have to, that are struggling with weight loss resistance, I don't want to delegitimize it. That's exciting for them. But from a functional medicine standpoint, I'm actually more uh, excited about the anti-inflammatory benefits. Yeah. It's a way to downregulate all these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So all these people are going through these chronic inflammatory problems that I mentioned earlier. This is a natural anti-inflammatory you can tap into and upregulate these antioxidant pathways and also something called autophagy or cellular recycling. It's sort of these this anti-accelerated uh, aging pathway, this pro-cellular renewal pathway. It increases mitochondrial biogenesis, actually making new mitochondria, improves BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, encouraging your brain to make new neurons and neuroplasticity. So many cool things. I could sp speak for hours about it, but it's just allowing your body to do it. It's that physician within that Paracelsus talked about. Which is amazing. Like, how, whatever happens, is it like, do you have to be pretty... Uh, not do you have to know what you're doing or follow a program because whatever happened to remember that whole starvation mode you don't eat for you, you know if, if you wait too long to eat then your body's going to go into starvation mode it's going to hold on to those calories and that's how you're going to gain weight is that just a myth altogether or do you have to be careful or know what you're doing when you're doing fasting that's relatively true again but not absolutely true if someone's not fat adapted and they're lowering their calories for long periods of time, right. that's not a good thing. That's going to put the body in this prolonged state of stress while not even fully, uh, depending on what they're eating, they're not going to even be in ketosis probably. They're going to be because they're eating like maybe lots of refined sugars and stuff. They're just restricting their calories. So it's kind of this metabolic purgatory in that way where they're neither in heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. and, they, and, and that's why most dieting fails is because you get the kindling off the fire. You've never got a log in the fire. And then you just like this, this like sucks and you, you give up on it. Right. And that, that could definitely put stress hormones up too high and make it really difficult to lose weight. So there's the yin and the yang. There's the fasting and the feasting. You need both of them. And it's not about like one is better, like they're, they're both important. And that's going back to that, that Goldilocks principle that I mentioned yeah. earlier, physiologically, they both are amazing. It's let's, let's leverage the benefits of both without falling prey of the potential pitfalls of doing one too much. 
So it's just the synergy somewhere in the middle. And that's, that's what I'm exploring in the book. So it's basically you have to get your body to be fat adapted, where you get where then you see all the health benefits, right? So in part, yeah, in part, and that's not going to happen overnight, depending right. on the health eating it's not going to happen overnight that's why this is a lifestyle change but yes that is the goal i, I the analogy that i use in the book and you know this because you read it but for people that haven't like i call it this proverbial yoga class for your metabolism yeah and you're stretching contracting your metabolism depending on when you're starting out on your journey like what's your baseline it's going to take some time and for some people they'll get it faster and how they eat will definitely either speed up or slow down that metabolic flexibility transition getting that log in the fire because they're eating lots of carbohydrates and junk food that's first of all not i wouldn't advocate that anyways i don't recommend fasting your way out of a poor diet that's like not cool but at the same time you can uh you can see some health benefits of fasting because you're giving your body a break from all the junk at that point so it has fringe benefits but that's not the point of this here it's actually to really take your health to the next level and that's that like you mentioned earlier, like intuitive eating and you hear that on social media. And that's like big conversation that I have in the book is that, look, there is a certain subset of people that have great health, they feel great, they have no blood sugar problems. And intuitive eating comes naturally to them. And I'm not judging anyone. So if that works for you, great. But what I'm saying is, if you look at the statistics of 50% of the United States has a blood sugar problem, 50 million Americans have an autoimmune condition. Millions are struggling with weight loss resistance and hormonal problems. That's a real, that's that proverbial noise that's going on in the body. And it's going to be hard to discern what's your intuition and what's your hangriness or what's your intuition or hormone imbalance or what's your intuition or blood sugar imbalance. So by calming that noise at the beginning, fasting will not be intuitive. So I call the book intuitive fasting. It will seem paradoxical at the, at the, at the front end of it, because it is, you're, you're, you're addicted to the kindling. So you're not going to have fun with fasting, but that's why I'm starting off gently. Like I'm starting that yoga class. I suck at yoga when I first started and I still kind of suck at it because I don't do it enough. But if I show up to yoga class, it doesn't mean yoga is not for me. It's like, what the heck? It's I'm not flexible and I have to gain metabolic flexibility and keep showing up. That's the same thing that's going on with fasting. You have to gain flexibility on the other end of it. When you have a log in the fire, you fasting will be intuitive because you'll be able to have proper satiety signals. Your blood sugar will be balanced. You'll be able to go longer without eating because you have created this firm foundation for authentic intuitive eating. And that's what metabolic flexibility is. That's a great analogy, by the way. It's like people with fitness, they want to be, they want to go from zero to 60. Like, well, I want to have a six pack. Well, you have to at least go to the gym and you start have to have a clean diet. It doesn't, it takes some time to kind of like get there, but consistency is is what it is. And what I, in your program, in your um, book, you talk about the four week flexible, the four week uh, uh, flexible program. And you, you do, you ease people into it. It's not like just like, okay, now we're going to go for 22 hours, but um, so can people in the first week you do 12 hours, that's how you break, you don't do a 12 hour feeding time and 12 hour fasting time. Um, mm-hmm. if people just, I'm curious, if people just stay with the 12, 12 and, and don't, you know, kind of go any further, do they still get the health benefits? Yeah. Especially the, the way that they're, they're, I advocate eating because they're eating a ketotarian diet, which is a plant centric, sort of a Mediterranean ketogenic diet. It's very clean, very 
rich with polyphenols and antioxidants and beneficial fats and fiber, all the stuff you need to be healthy. I mean, you have right. it there. So if you did that and just did 12-12, and I actually mentioned this in the book in passing, it probably was like a sentence or two, but if you needed to repeat week one yeah, and do it for awesome. two weeks to three weeks, do that. Like there's no reason why you need to rush it. Meet your body where it's at. And certainly I could see week one being repeated two or three times, or if you want to do it as long as you yeah, we're dead, right? <laughs> Take it easy. So like, we're too scary. We're, you. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're just uh, stay at week one for as long as you can, basically. Yeah, right. I mean, me, this is a, I want to integrate feeling great in your life. And sometimes people have to be in the right headspace and the heart space to be there. And if that's forever and indefinitely just doing that, then do that because you're allowing a couple hours to happen before bed. Uh, without eating, you're allowing your body to fast yeah. through the night, you're eliminating the late night snacking, and you're mimicking some of the benefits of fasting with your food. So yeah, if you did not dig even any deeper over the subsequent three weeks in the plan, that certainly would have amazing merits. Well, because I also think you're also developing healthy habits going forward, yeah. right? With the, the lot, because every, I mean, listen, this is not the fact that people should, this is not rocket science about like not eating late before you go to bed or all these other things that people, yes, because you're going to be going to sleep with, you know, sugar and all these other calories and whatever. So um, do you notice that when people do the full, like when you do that, when you started, well, how long have you been doing your fasting for you yourself, you personally? Oh, no. Since I was a weird kid, I've, since I was a teenager. You I were doing the fasting back then too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I read a book called Patient Heal Thyself from Jordan Rubin, uh, who started Garden of Life, and then he sold it. And then he start, he's with Ancient Nutrition now with Josh Axon. These are good guys that yeah. I, now, I now know them. But like, I was like a 14-year-old kid reading Jordan Rubin's book about how he healed his Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or some inflammatory bowel issue. And use fasting and use these things to to get healthy. Yeah, I was doing water fasts and green juice fasts uh, very as a teenager. What do you think of those? What do you think of the water fast and the green juice fasts and all that, those things? They have their place. I think they have their, definitely have their place. I, think, I, I don't. That's not what I'm exploring. Intuitive fasting. Uh, I want it to be this to be a, a sustainable thing for people to do. Yeah, ample amounts of food, but I it's. Thing longer fast is something that I definitely explore with patients where it's clinically appropriate. Some people that have very out of control immune systems, they're hyper inflammatory state, their body's reacting to everything, or they're going through some really serious health issues. Those fasts can be life saving as far as their quality of life. And you just, I mean, if you know, do you know Clubhouse? Have you been on? Yeah, of course. Yes. I'm not good at it, so I like. Neither am I, and I, I, I need another, you know, social media application like a hole in the head, right? Like, <laughs> like not enough already with everything else. Yeah, I literally have done nothing on it. But the point of yeah. saying is, like, I'm just used to seeing my patients. But I was in a fasting group on Clubhouse the other day, and I was hearing the amount of people that do these longer fasts yeah. on their own, and they're just like this changed their life. So it was cool to hear that because, like, I'm used to like being a part of that. But just hearing other people's stories is really cool. But yeah, that's definitely has its place. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been I, I mean, there's been so many reports and research backing the fasting uh, evolution or whatever you want to call it. But um, no, in, in your in your program, the four week program, can someone do four weeks and then go off for a month or two and come back? Can you stagger? Can you go back and forth and be flexible that way? Or does it ruin all the benefits that you've had already? No, I want 
this is the intuitive part of it is a, yeah. as you get metabolic flexibility, you will grow in intuition. And what I mean by that, your physiological foundational stuff, like proper blood sugar balance, gut brain access, communication, blood, uh, the uh, satiety signaling, all that stuff will create a clear uh, signaling for you to hear uh, intuition, the proper knowingness of what your body loves. But we also bring some mindful eating into these four weeks and just acts of stillness to grow the mental emotional side of things too and renegotiate or grow an awareness around your relationship with food and your body. So there's going to be a few, there's going to be a lot of uh, shifts and growth and awareness over this four weeks. So they're going to know, oh, like I did better with more of this. I'm going to do more of this and less of this. And they're going to be able to evolve that protocol to work with them. And that's certainly fine for people to find like, and towards the end of the book, I talk about finding your carb sweet spot and like getting a baseline, like what's sustainable for you. Let's do something that you can do every day. They are going to be able to discover that some people that discover it in the four weeks, I think most people would do better to reevaluate after four weeks, retake that quiz that's in the book that I adapted from questions that ask patients, and then cycle through another four weeks. Because I think after two or three cycles of four, they'll have gained so much health and awareness about their body that they'll be able to readjust this and create their like everyday protocol. They, have a, they will have intuitively built it for themselves. So that's bioindividuality. That's the heart of what functional medicine is. We're all different. So not everybody has to do the deeper fast all the time. They could do it periodically. Many people would do better with these vacillating intermittent cyclical fasts throughout their week, throughout their months. And what happens with people who are like really active, like people who work out a lot, like work out hard? How does fast, how does this work, your program? How does fasting work with people like that? Like, is there, I, be, I guess, until you get to that energy, you're saying like eventually people get to that fat adaptive place where they have a lot more energy and they're less brain fog. Is it so even with that, do you, do you recommend people not exercising hard and when they start or? The, obviously, when, when I'm talking to patients, I can like, I'm with them like via webcam for like weeks on end. So I can adjust it accordingly. <laughs> so exactly. it's like, I, 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 I can, you know, where someone's at and adjust it and, and make it really personalized. But for the book, what I said was, if you don't, uh, if you if you've never done CrossFit, and I don't think like starting this protocol and doing CrossFit would be the right thing. But right. if you have your normal activity level, right, do it. Stick with your activity level because you're not restricting calories. And there's a time and place for fasted workouts, which has its place. I'm not saying everybody has to do it all the time, but it's definitely something to explore and see how you feel. There are many people that really thrive on some intermittent fasted workouts. And they should expo- experiment with it for that over the course of the four weeks. So then I want to ask you, because this is a big, this is always a debate in the fitness space, right? Like, do you do cardio on, you know, on an empty stomach? Do you eat? So you would obviously say the best way to burn fat is to like do cardio on an empty stomach. Well, it depends, right? Because the context matters because that person, what are they going through? I guess is the question. Are they going through chronic stress? Are they not sleeping well at night? Uh, what's their, what are their hormones look like? What's their blood sugar look like? Like you oh, can yes. have, you know what I mean? Like it, it's yeah. like some people, they Come on, know. Will, give me something. I want to have like, I want you to say, you know, eat oh. breakfast and then go work out. No, I'm just kidding. I want you to tell me because this is like the debate of my brain. Do I eat first? Do I go to the gym? You know what I mean? what I do both and see how you feel. 
because you're going to get different answers depending on who you're talking to. Some people thrive off that cardio that's fasted. They thrive on it. And then some people are like, I can't give as much. I'm really like puttering out. I can't do as much cardio when I'm in a fasted state. And what's true for you now will not necessarily be what's true for you months down the road when you've changed your health. So I would say meet your body where it's at, experiment with both. And that's what I advocate in the book. Try a fasted, try a non-fasted workout and see where you're at. And then as you gain metabolic flexibility, you will find that what is true for you now isn't necessarily what you were dealing with back then. No, I agree. And I also will say to that point, I think once everything's hard at the beginning, but you adapt right? Like I never thought in a million years, I would be able to like work out without eating. But I have knowing that you were coming on the podcast, I tried to do that a little bit. And I will tell you, now I don't want to eat breakfast before I work out. I pushed my, listen, I'm not, I'm not great at it. But I pushed my my breakfast like three hours. I mean, it's a start, right? Absolutely. I I mean, you if you did, let's just say 11am. Yeah, that's a uh, 17 hour fast. If you do like 11 to six, I mean, that's week well, two. So You've already yeah. done week two. No, oh. I have not. I've been like trying to do like seven or eight o'clock until like 10 or 11. I mean, like, listen, and it's hard. Not every day. It's like random. I'm not doing any program, but you are knowing that, like I said, that you're going to be on the podcast. I was like, I'm going to try to do this and I've done better than I've done in the past. So, I mean... So like I yeah. said, it's all baby steps here. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, week three is the, the deepest fast. The yes. oh. Well, look, I mean, I, you have true niagen behind you. Yes. I, talk about, I talk about NAD in the book. So shout out to true niagen. I mean, nicotinamide, riboside, these types of B vitamins support NAD. Well, fasting can increase support NAD levels too. So true niagen plus a uh, deeper fast. Two ways to increase. A hundred percent. I love that you said that. So uh, that I'm like that. That's my buddy over there. I take that every single day, and and I work. That's what I do in the morning. I take the Trinidad. I I drink some coffee. I'm sorry, no Earl Grey for me. I, I have some water, <laughs> and then I jump on the treadmill. Because by the way, we usually do this on a treadmill. Oh, I don't cool. know if you know this 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 podcast, but because of everything oh. happening with everything with the with COVID, yeah. everything has gone this way. But um, hopefully one day, I mean, I'm digressing here, but hopefully next time we can go on the treadmill when you're, if you're ever in LA, we can do it properly. Um, But so you are a big fan of NAD then too. I was going to ask you about also, tell tell us about, so you, are you, what supplements are you a believer in? Why, tell us about NAD because I think still, even though I talk about it, a lot of people don't really understand the importance of it and what it is. Yeah, so NAD is needed for cellular energy and repair, and it it depletes as we age. And uh, there's promising studies, and the people at Trinitogen are legitimate. I mean, they're really serious about the science about it. But the fact that we can support NAD levels, cellular energy, which we need for just healthy aging, uh, healthy a long long healthy life, uh, in nicotinamide riboside, this type of B vitamin can help support NAD levels. Fasting can do the same. So I take, I, I love true niogen. I take it. You do. Um, I yeah. love it. Yeah. That's amazing. So I, yeah, I do. I, I like, I, and I don't have any, like they're, they're sweet people and I've done certain like educational stuff for them, but they, uh, I also like the mind body greens NR plus they, that's, that's like another nicotine. I beside there's other ones out there. It depends on what you want to do, but I love true niogen, And I, my supplements that I take 
We typically, I typically just do like the foundational stuff because it's just, I use food as medicine. I don't think you should try to supplement your way out of a poor diet. I think that if you're really yeah. working on nutrient density, food is first, fasting second, <laughs> and uh, supplements are, are after that. Uh, so vitamin um, D though, how about vitamin D? People say that's very good for um, yeah. even hormone regulation or just for daily immune system health. Do you believe in that one? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's it, vitamin D is responsible for over 2000 different pathways in the body. It is acts as a, almost a pro hormone. So every cell of your body has a, a vitamin D receptor site. No other hormone has that level of importance other than the thyroid. So I, I call it the thyroid and vitamin D is the queen and the king of all hormones. If your thyroid's not working well, nothing's working well. Vitamin D's not working well, nothing's working well. Right. So the optimal range for vitamin D is about 60 to 100. You could, you could say 60 to 80 to be a little bit more moderate there. But a lot of times people with autoimmunity tend to do better with the 80-ish, 90-ish vitamin D levels. I pair it with vitamin K2, which is another mm -hmm. fat-soluble vitamin that is deficient, just like vitamin D is deficient. And it's hard to get vitamin D from foods. So that's where supplementation really plays a part. Unless I'm like in a loincloth in Miami 12 months a year, <laughs> I'm not getting sun here in Pittsburgh. It's I, cold. I, well, you got to go get a loincloth then and, and go to Miami <laughs> or even LA. I mean, so people who live in Miami or live in LA with the sun, does they still could be deficient though in vitamin D, right? Oh, I see it all the time. I see, I mean, I'm joking about Miami, but yeah. I see a lot no, of I know. people. I see a lot of patients in Miami. I see a lot of patients in Arizona. I see a lot of patients in, in Southern California. They're vitamin D deficient too. So it's not just about, I mean, most of the time people aren't outside that much anyway. So even if it is sunny outside, people aren't getting enough direct sunlight and they have clothes on and there's sunscreen that can block it too. So that there's that side of it. And I'm not saying not wearing sunscreen. I'm just saying that it no, blocks no. vitamin D. So uh, yeah, so it's it doesn't matter where you live. You should have your vitamin D levels checked because we just... That's modernity. That's that genetic epigenetic mismatch. Our, our bodies haven't adapted to this much inside life. <laughs> we, no. That's why we're, we're vitamin D deficient. We don't have proper circadian rhythms because we don't have normal natural light. We, it impacts sleep, impacts our mood, it impacts our immune system. It's so important to get proper daylight exposure and then proper, obviously, uh, nighttime without having blue lights in our face all the time on screen. So Absolutely. that impacts tons of stuff, yeah. Absolutely, a couple more questions in your book and then I can we can wrap it. I wanna talk about carb cycling. You talk about cycling a lot in the book. Um, how, to do it, how do you do it properly? Cause I feel like it can get very complicated. Yeah, yeah, it, it can. And I, I try to, I like keeping health simple. I, I don't wanna overcomplicate it. I have some patients that are biohackers, but that's actually not the majority of my patient yeah. base. I like some people thrive off of the granular and they want to get super wonky about it, but I, do, I don't like it. I think there should be a grace and an ease to wellness. Um, and look, it's going to be a learning curve at the beginning. Maybe it's going to be good to get a little bit granular so you can at least eyeball and become aware of how your body uses fuel and where do you feel the best and track on like a chronometer or my fitness pal or a diet tracking app of some sort, but do that a couple weeks, maybe even one week, you can start to know, okay, this is my basic breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is the, my meals that I do. And people are pretty creatures of habit and they'll kind of get a rhythm on like, okay, I, this is what I do. I, I adjust this. And then this is what I, I, what I do to feel great. Um, so clean carb cycling, 
that's the, the kindling on the fire. There's a time and place for that. You've got the log on the fire, but you need to put the kindling on too. Women especially uh, will benefit from this. And I should preface this with that all women are different. And I know that people like to pontificate and say fasting is bad for women or keto is bad for right. women. But who is she? Because I've met tons of different women with tons of different health issues. And to reduce them to like women is very unfair to many women. So is she going through PCOS or metabolic issues or weight loss resistance or autoimmune issues or neurological issues? Fasting will be a completely different story to her. Even deeper fast will be different for her than someone that doesn't have those issues. She maybe has, she's lean, she's going through a chronic stress time, or she's not getting enough sleep. She's low thyroid issues. All women fasting will, will it, it behave differently in their body. But I do think that most women do better with a cyclical approach. And then as they grow in intuition and know about their body, some women will do better with the deeper fast. Some women won't. So they're going to find that sweet spot, both with fasting and carb moderation, because remember the ketogenic diet mimics fasting. So, uh, most women are, uh, tend to be higher in something called kispeptin, which is a signaling molecule that makes a lot of women more sensitive to prolonged states of fasting or prolonged states of ketosis through fasting or the ketogenic diet. So clean carb cycling is a tool that we can really use to leverage these amazing benefits of being keto adapted, getting that log in the fire without thinking that all you need is a log. I mean, progesterone, the thyroid hormone, the gut microbiome, and just enjoying food. Uh, I think that there's a lot of beauty in clean carb cycling, but you don't have to be super complex. I mean, it's, I mean, A, the meal plan in the book, I took all the guesswork out of it anyway. So if you ate and just followed the plan in the book and just learned about it, then you'll know after doing it one month, you'll say, okay, that was, wasn't so hard. You didn't overcomplicate it. You didn't even need a diet tracking app because I did all the math for you. Um, but if you wanted to track it, you could. Um, but once you've done this for a, week, a month or so, there should be an intuition on this stuff where you just eyeball foods and, and that's going to be enough for most people. Yeah. Can you say, what, can someone be, if, can someone do your program without the ketogenic portion and they just regularly eat what they were going to eat anyway, but just a minus, I mean, with, with reason, I mean, not, yeah. you know, not junk, food. not junk food, but like if they didn't want to do the ketogenic way, but they wanted just to do the, the four week and just kind of learn and kind of get better at it. Would it still, would they still deem the results? Absolutely. Yeah. I would just say it's amplified doing it the way that I advocate for, Yeah, but it's not that it's, you need one without the other. They're just, they're, they both stand on their own. I'm just saying they're amplified when they're done together because the ketotarian way of eating makes your fast easier. So you'll have a lot more of an effortlessness when it comes to fasting. And then the fast will make you more keto adapted. So it'll make the, the eating a lot uh, easier as well. They both are synergistic and they both make each other more beneficial. Yeah. I, and you're not a vegan, right? Or a vegetarian. And like, no. I, I was surprised. I thought for sure you're going to be like a vegan and you're not like oh. you, you eat meat. Did I get that vegan vibe off? I don't know. I didn't yeah, know I did that. You did. You do. I, I just feel, but now, but now like when I saw that, I was like, okay, phew. Cause I, I, I'm not a vegan. Um, mm. I, so you, you're a big proposal, not a big, but you have no problem with like a carnivore diet or no, what's, what's mean, your take on this whole vegan, uh, craze as well. I feel like vegan, the whole, there's also a whole like movement now with veganism. So what do mm -hmm. you think, Dr. Will? Well, 
<laughs> well, I wrote Keto Tarian and I pissed people off with my first book. I'm sure. Mostly plant-based ketogenic books. So I pissed off a lot of the vegans because there was an egg inside an avocado. And I said the word mostly plant-based because apparently they own the words plant-based. Yeah. Um, it's like this tribalism uh, is ridiculous. Unbelievable. So, but then I pissed off the ketogenic community too because – they were like they 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 have this unhealthy uh, fear of vegetable fiber, so it's like either way I irritated both sides. But look, the truth is often sometimes in the, somewhere in the middle, and context matters. And that's I'm not just giving my opinion. This is like years of clinical experience and tons of research, uh, and you don't have to pick one or the other. That the the a balance of both being mostly plant-based, a clean ketogenic diet, which is what ketotarian is, is it's more of a Mediterranean way of eating. It's plant forward, but it's not entirely plant, all entirely plants. Uh, so what I think about the vegans, I think that if you do a vegan diet, there's tons of vegan keto options in ketotarian and in intuitive fasting. I mean, intuitive there's a lot, fasting, way too many yeah. for my liking. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I marked them all. There's tons of vegans. It's vegetarians or like clean, uh, pescatarian, uh, vegetarian, uh, and then there's the vegivore section, the, the grass-fed beef, and lots of omnivore options too. So I, I tried to be as inclusive as possible. But what do I think about? It? I think it's fine if people are led that way, and and if that if, they, if their health is great, if what they're doing is working for them, keep doing it. I think pro I bring up these points in ketotarian about the bioavailability of certain nutrients and long chain omega fatty acids and yeah. uh, iron and B twelve. Yeah, we can talk about that. But you can supplement with it and mitigate that. I would just say if you can't get all your nutrients from food. Is it really the most optimal diet for you? And that's why I recommended a more of a Mediterranean ketogenic way of eating, uh, which still has tons of plants, but it brings in some of these food medicines that you cannot fully mimic in a capsule in a supplement form. So it is uh, really food as medicine. Uh, so I don't have a problem with it. And I don't have a problem with the carnivore diet too. I mean, Paul Saladino is a great friend of mine. And yeah. oh, I, he was I, on here. I liked him. Oh. Yeah. He is a genius. I mean, Ge he's a very smart. Guy. so smart i mean listen the guy like is so knowledgeable i mean it was i was riveted by everything he was saying and mm -hmm. like he hasn't eaten a vegetable in like 20 20 years now but he's a little bit of a freak but whatever we love him but <laughs> he's a little bit of a freak for sure definitely <laughs> yeah, oh my I god i know i use i've said this many times before i use a clean well-formulated carnivore diet for people who need it. I mean, Paul says it differently than I say it, but I use it as an ultimate elimination diet approach for a time for people that have out of control food reactivities. They have histamine intolerance, have FODMAP intolerance, and salicylate intolerance, and oxalate intolerance, and their body's reacting to air and ice cubes in a negative way. That A carnivore diet is going to be a good tool to use for a time, but then we have to transition them out of it. So I do that all the time with patients that I need to, but one size doesn't fit all. And where, what you need today isn't necessarily what you need to do forever and ever. So I, I see a place for all of these things. It's like how we're doing it, who's doing it, and for how long are we doing it? That's the, the context that's important. Oh, you're very knowledgeable. I just have a quick random question. Why is everybody now giving out these uh, these poop tests? Like you got to like, t they check your stool, I feel, for like 
for to get all their all your information is that like a new fad in the last couple of years i feel like it's become very popular with yeah with, i may have been due to is that, it because like, of you may no i'm not just kidding but i've been <laughs> writing about microbiome health for a long time so it's probably part of it but I, i'm sure uh, it's you to blame yeah well us maybe in functional medicine and, and you know what it's really all the amazing research coming out of PubMed. I mean, there's thousands of studies over the past 10 years looking at the gut, and then that trickles down to the clinical side of things, me, and it trickles down to like the direct cons to consumer uh, labs too, where people wanting to not even go through a doctor to want to find out about their health. So I, I like it. I think it's cool. It's informative. But the reality is a lot of times these direct to consumer stool labs, yeah, they don't there's very little like, what do I do this with this information? It's like, cool, but it's what, what is it? Is it really going to change my decision making? Sometimes it does. Right. But for many people, I get these lab results from patients. And I say, we say it from the clinic, give us your last year of labs and I'll get these pile of labs. And a lot of times these tests that I won't name them. I, I mean, I don't have any problem with them personally, but the persons are like, I, the, the people are like, I don't even know what to do with this information. Like, What's it even mean? And even me, from a functional medicine standpoint, knowing every little bit of colony back forming units of every bacteria, I don't need to know all that information at this point. Later on, as we learn more about the microbiome, maybe we'll have better clinical, practical, what's this do? But right now, it's just like a lot of data, but not necessarily a lot of action steps. So we run different labs in functional medicine when it comes to gut health. I don't need to know every nuance of every colony forming unit of bacteria. But do you do that test? Do you do a, a, a much more specific poop test yeah. with you guys? Okay. And what yeah, do you we, get? What, yeah. This, tell us. This is what we're looking at differently. And this is, this will determine action steps. To me, it's like, all right, if something is cool information to learn about it, I'm, I'm not against it. If someone wants to learn about their body, let them learn about it. But it, for me, from a functional medicine standpoint, I only want to run things that are going to change what we do to actually do something about it instead mm -hmm. of just looking at labs for the sake of it. Because it's like, what's the point of it if it's not going to actually change what we do and we can compare and contrast it over time and after we get our baseline and we implement an intervention? So for uh, a patients for their stool test, what we do is we're looking at good bacteria. We're looking for bacterial overgrowths or dysbiosis. Uh, so people that have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO or CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, we're looking at those through stool tests and breath tests to look at uh, bacterial and fungal overgrowths. Those people get IBS, they have inflammatory bowel issues, they have acid reflux, they have bloating, they have type mm. other uh, type of autoimmune issues a lot of times. That's the need to, we need to know that. And we also need to know if there's inflammatory markers in the gut. So things like calprotectin, lactoferrin, lysozyme, these are inflammatory markers that you can get on a stool test because inflammation in the gut, you can use that as a baseline and see that inflammation levels come down as you improve their health. And then same with uh, intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. You can rule that in with a stool test and blood test as well to look at the landscape of someone that that can trigger inflammation levels in the body and uh, digestion and absorption. You want to look at that if their body is actually absorbing nutrients. These are things that you can get pre and post and you can mm. actually make action steps on determining a protocol that's appropriate for them. Well, thank you. I'm going to leave it at that. I mean, great question to finish with, you know, but. <laughs> it's
start and finish our conversation with microbiome poop tests uh, anytime with me. So. Okay, good. Because I, that's, I, I love that. That was my favorite question of all because I was so curious. I feel like everyone and their dog now are like, hey, I, just got, I got my my poop analyzed or have you gotten this done or have you done? Everyone's talking about this test. I mean, the last couple of years and, you know, like that's that's like the bench like the benchmark now for someone's health. So I'm like, I'm going to ask, you know, Dr. Will when I have him on mm-hmm. and see what he thinks. So. Yeah. That's there you go. That's the way I did. So how, okay, the book is called I don't I don't have a copy. I was reading it on my I only got like the electronic the, version. The electronic version. That's why I would show it. But the book is called Intuitive Fasting. It's out February twenty third, yeah? yeah? Yeah, February twenty third. Uh yeah. It's it's I it's out of the three books that I've written, it's my favorite book by far to write. I wrote it over end of twenty nineteen, over COVID. twenty twenty was like I was holed up in my house writing this book. So I'm excited that it's out now. Oh my God. Amazing. And then where do people find you if they want to know more about fasting, uh, inflammation, uh, ketotarian, poop, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Amazing. And social media. You're on social media, aren't you? Yeah. At at drwillcole on Instagram, D-R-W-I-L-C-O-L-E. On Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Clubhouse. Oh, God. <laughs> and of course, you're on Goop. You could just like Goop, go on Goop and there's like a thousand things of you. You're like the, the house doctor, the house uh, <laughs> practitioner. Um, well, and well, it's so nice to meet you. You're, you're just a doll and such a, such a wealth of information. I mean, your vocabulary. You. I mean... It's, you should you should be an English teacher because you, you speak so well. <laughs> uh, my, yeah, so I I love I love talking about this stuff. So thank you so much. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habitnest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.